Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. excited that you're here with us today. Yeah, it's going to be a good day, but a crazy case. This one is different than some of the other ones that we've done, and it was a little difficult parts of it to Did it research give you on this one. No, I'm dark enough that it was okay, but <laughs> <laughs> biggest scaredy cat. I do like a little bit of research. And I'm like, okay, let's watch Disney and watch Parks and Rec. That's such a great show. I've been watching that. I don't want it to end. I'm on the last season. So funny. Oh, okay. This case. Okay. So today's case, it is a heavy one. So don't say I didn't warn you. Okay. Fairly warned. Fairly warned. But I wanted to cover it. I'm really interested to hear what yours as well as what our listeners' thoughts are on this one. We're going to be discussing a case where the murderer is just a 10-year-old little girl. Oh, yeah. This is a widely known case in the UK, and I'm not quite sure how widely it is remembered here in North America. It is the case of Mary Flora Bell. Have you heard of her? I've heard of her. I haven't actually. I don't know the details of the case, though. Okay. Well, we're going into the details. We're digging deep today. But I will give a trigger warning right off the bat, as this is a case of severe child abuse and a child killing other children. And so parts of it can be hard to hear. Don't all of our episodes need a trigger warning? We're always talking about gruesome stuff and stuff that scares me. It's true. So here's your blanket warning, listeners. (laughs) Trigger warning, probably in every single episode. How can it not be, really? However, I do feel like this is an incredible case to discuss, nature versus nurture, when we examine how a person can commit unspeakable crimes, or even, or especially, at a young age. And we'll discuss this more at the end. Oh, I love a good nature versus nurture debate. I know that you do, and so I'm really interested to hear what you have to say at the end. So Mary, sometimes called May, was born on May 26, 1957, in Scotswood, Newcastle-upon-Tyne, in England. This area of England at the time was very low income, and there was lots of criminal activity and domestic violence taking place. Mary was the second-born child to 17-year-old Elizabeth Bell, and she went by Betty. Sorry, say how old was it? Because her mom was only 17. And this was her second child. Is this common for the time period, though, or...? Betty was actually a well-known sex worker in the area. Oh, okay. The area in Newcastle that they were, there was a lot of that going on. Now, Betty did not want this pregnancy at all, right from the start. Like I said, she was a well-known sex worker in the area, and so she would often go for long periods of time to Glasgow to service more clients and would just leave her kids at home for days at a time, regardless if their father was home or not. And occasionally she would drop them off with family members. Wait, she was with her husband? She was a prostitute, but still with the kids' father? Yep. That's an interesting family dynamic right there. It is. But it's, you have to remember, it was the time, it's like 1957. It's in a really rundown area. A lot of the women living there are sex workers. There's lots of criminal activity. It's not a great area. And she's bringing in money, right? And he's not an upstanding citizen either. So the identity of Mary's biological father is not definite. So this is who she believes is her father. Most of her life, she believed that William or Billy Bell was her father because he married her mother when Mary was a baby. However, her mother forced her to call him Uncle Bill so that she could continue to collect government assistance for her. 
So she was taught at a really young age to lie. So she was told that this was her father, but to call him Uncle Bill. Instead of Daddy. Instead of Daddy, yeah. So okay. that she could get the government checks. Nothing's on the up and up. But do you think a three-year-old at the time even knows the difference? They're just taught what to call people. Well, from what I understood, she knew it was her father, but she had to call him Uncle Bill. Okay. So she knew he was Dad and Daddy, but... Now, Billy was not that great himself. He was a violent alcoholic, and he had a long criminal arrest record, including arrests for armed robbery. So at this time, he was in and out of jail. That's how sometimes the kids were left alone when mom would go to Glasgow to work. They lived at 70 White House Road, and the home was described as filthy and not having much furniture in it. Mary started out life being neglected and unwanted, which is not a great way to start. That's awful. It breaks my heart when babies aren't wanted. I know. Her aunt said that only minutes after Mary was born, her mother got upset at the hospital staff when they tried to place Mary in her arms, and Betty yelled at them, Take that thing away from me! Oh, I have been that nurse, actually. Really? It's awful. Yes. That's crazy. I'm shocked that that's happened, like, today's day and date. Oh, absolutely still happens. So that's a red flag right from the start. Mm -hmm. Mary had dark hair and big blue eyes. Family members suspected abuse or neglect right from the start. Mary always suffered household injuries, quote-unquote household injuries, as a baby and toddler. They started to suspect that Betty may even be trying to kill Mary. Oh, my goodness. That is awful. Yeah, it's just... And household injuries, that was the term back then for when we didn't actually want to address the abuse that was occurring. Right, and right from baby. So in 1960, when Mary was about three years old, Betty dropped her purposefully out of a first-floor window. Just grabbed her and dropped her out the window. Yep. Awful. It is awful. On more than one occasion, Betty fed Mary a bunch of pills, including sleeping pills and iron pills, and claimed that Mary was suicidal. So that this baby is suicidal, and that's why she took all these pills. How old was she? Not very old. She was little. So she had to feed the pills to her daughter. Yeah. People said that they saw Betty giving Mary sleeping pills as sweets. Like as treats. But there was a couple of times where she had consumed way too much and had almost died from it. This always strikes me as absolutely unreal is that, okay, one parent is messed up, but then people know this is going on. But I guess this is back in the 50s where you didn't mess with other people's businesses, right? What happened in their homes was what... Right. And Betty's family actually had offered to adopt or take custody of Mary, but Betty refused. I thought she didn't want her around. But she wouldn't let her family take care of her. So being dropped from the window as well as the overdoses could both have led to Mary's brain being injured. And this isn't confirmed, but it's highly suspected. And brain trauma as a child is a classic trait in serial killers. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to be talking about a few of these classic traits of serial killers. I'm curious, did you dig into Betty's background? I did a little bit, and they suspected that she was bipolar. Bipolar. And did she have abuse growing up, too? Was this something that she didn't that actually know? That I couldn't find. Because oh. usually the parents have a story, too, right? Oh, I'm and sure. why they are the way they are. The only thing I could see with her mental health was they suspected that she was bipolar. Okay. At one time, Betty even sold Mary to a mentally unstable woman who couldn't have children of her own and had been deemed unfit to adopt. And then Betty's older sister had to go and retrieve Mary and return her to Betty. What? Mm -hmm. And then again, like offered to adopt or even just take custody of Mary. But Betty said no way. But she was okay to give her to this mentally unstable woman who was going to give her money for her. So she would sell her, just not give her up. Right. She'd actually given her to her. Betty's sister says when she went to go retrieve her, this lady had already started buying Mary dresses and oh, why not was ready to take then? her. So but she was deemed mentally unstable. Okay. To, she had been denied being able to adopt. By the age of two, it was said that Mary was unable to bond with anyone. She was detached. She would lash out with violence and she never cried. 
Mary said later that she saw crying as a sign of weakness. Because her brain's been overstimulated to that threat response. That's crazy. Yeah. And if she cried, maybe that's when abuse would happen and stuff, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So as I mentioned already, Mary's mother was a sex worker and she specialized in being a dominatrix. Betty would often bring her clients home and sometimes used her daughter as a sexual prop in sadomasochistic situations. What? Mm -hmm. She'd use her as a prop. Okay, my mind can't even go to where, how you would use a baby as a sex prop. It's suspected like around age four or five. So not like as a baby, but four or five is when this started to happen. Oh, that is awful. I can't even, I can't even imagine. It was later described as one of the worst cases of sexual abuse. So it makes me feel like, did Mary even have a fighting chance? But about this sexual abuse, Betty was quoted saying, quote, at least I made sure the whips and stuff were hidden. Oh, stand up, mother. Right? Dirtbag Mother of the Year Award goes to Betty Bell. It makes me wonder what her experiences were, too. Well, maybe we'll, maybe we need to dig into that. Yeah. Maybe that'll be another case that'll we cover. That'll be our deep dig. Today. That's right. Maybe that'll be for our Patreons one day. Mary began having issues with bedwetting, which is another classic serial killer sign. But bedwetting often goes along with abuse, right? Like it's yep. a classic symptom of abuse. Yeah. But the bedwetting is actually listed as a sign. Sign of serial killer. It's usually yeah. the two go hand in hand. Later bedwetting. We're not talking about normal yep. potty training bedwetting, like chronic bedwetting. Betty would often grab Mary by the hair and she would forcibly rub her face into the soiled sheets and mattress like you would to a dog. This was just horrific to me. Just even picturing what that whole scenario would have looked like is just heartbreaking. It's awful. It is. To add to her trauma, as a child, Mary witnessed her five-year-old friend get killed by a bus. And I'm sure there was no good counseling or good talking about that or good discussion. No, it's just with children. Yeah. So Mary had a horrific childhood. And this is only a glimpse of what she endured. So where do these reports come from? Because Mary's pretty young to like self-report. Like this is what people are noticing. Who knows what's going on? Right. And they don't notice. Right. Well, there's actually a few books that we'll talk about after that have been written about Mary. And one of the books, Mary is interviewed for the book. Oh, okay. So some of it's self-reported then. Some of it is self-reported. So basically her mother only valued the money that she received from the government for Mary, as well as the money that she made using her as a prop with her male clients. Oh, so that's why she didn't want to get her family to take her. Yeah. She was getting she her was government getting the, checks. Right. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes, makes sense now, sense right? Now. So yeah, so she just wanted this money from the government and she made money. This was a special prop that she had that other sex workers didn't, that her male clients could enjoy. Dirtbag. By the time Mary started kindergarten in 1961, she was out of control. The teacher said she was almost always naughty. She kicked, punched, and hit the other kids. She would have sudden mood swings, and she made up lies all the time. Mary would vandalize things at the school and sometimes even steal. She was described as a show-off who was proud of her bad behavior, so she liked the attention that her behavior brought her. Well, because she wouldn't have attention any other way. Right, it was understandable. And she'd have a total threat bias, so anybody approaching her, she would be leery of and strike out first so that they didn't hit her. Oh, exactly. Yeah. The whole case, you can just kind of see how this is developing and why all this is happening. Her teacher once saw Mary put her hands around a classmate's neck and told her to stop doing this. She replied, why? Can it kill him? And this continued to happen on multiple occasions. Her actions escalated one time when she tried to block the trachea of another little girl by stuffing sand down her throat. Mary's friend Norma was helping Mary by holding this little girl's arms down, but once she realized what Mary was doing, she got scared and jumped up and allowed the little girl to escape and run away. 
Mary later said that the only way she could feel anything was to make others feel something. Classmates said Mary would torment and kill small animals, which is another classic serial sign. We're going through a few of these signs today. They told the authorities, so the children and the classmates told the authorities, and they spoke to Mary about it. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back, so she would have felt some sense of control. Her own life was so out of control. These serial killer signs are widely known now, but child psychology was just beginning to be explored in the 1960s. So this was brand new. So it's not that they could look at all these different signs that Mary was displaying and see, okay, this is a big problem. Well, it wasn't really until the 60s that they even started paying attention to children in the first place, right? Yeah, it was just beginning in the 1960s. And sadly, the community was so ridden with crime that the police just brushed this off when they found out about this little girl with Mary trying to put the sand down her throat to stop her from breathing. It just got brushed off. They had so much other big crime going on Mm. that they didn't have the resources to spend on a little girl. Well, it's just childhood play. right? Right. And that's what a lot of people said. They chalked it up to play. Yeah. But needless to say, the kids became afraid of her. They said she would start to shake her head and stare coldly before an outburst. That her eyes would get big and she would just look straight and start shaking. Was she having a seizure? No, I just think the rage before she would have a freak out. One of Mary's only friends was her 13-year-old neighbor, Norma Joyce Bell. This is the girl that I talked about who was holding down the other girl's arms. Okay. Um, And any relation? No, same last name, but no relation. Okay. I guess it was a popular name at that time in England. Although Norma was three years older, she was reported as being mentally delayed and was easily persuaded. That's a good friend to have for somebody that wants to exert control over others. Yeah, it's a perfect storm, this whole thing. As Mary was growing up, the area she lived in was pretty run down. A lot of the moms, like I said, were sex workers, which resulted in the children of all ages running the streets and playing unsupervised most of the time. They just all kind of ran wild. The city was trying to clean up the area a bit and had started demolishing some of the slum-like homes. And so the local children, including Mary, would play in the crumbling homes and amongst all the construction rubble. So from really young ages, they just out all day playing and all this rubble and construction stuff made fun for them to you know, jump on and jump off of and play in and hide in. And It's hard to imagine that because we think of that and that sounds like horrific, but that would have just been their norm. That was and just actually- life. Back in the 60s, it would have been your mom to leave you unsupervised for long periods of time. Wouldn't have been a huge difference from even like an affluential family because kids were just sent out into the streets and come home for dinner kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Or if if you were homesick from school, you stayed home. And if your mom had to work, she still went to work. Even a lot of moms didn't at that time. It's hard to wrap her head around like was normal at that time because it's so different today. It is. Because we even wait till our kids are a certain age till we let them go to a park with a friend. That's right. Right? Let alone just, you know, the older siblings taking the little toddlers out with them and they just go play all day Mm -hmm. and be home for supper. On Saturday, May 11th, 1968, a three-year-old little boy was seen wandering around this wasteland area, bleeding and all confused. The injured boy said he had been playing with Mary and Norma on top of an air raid shelter, and that one of the girls had pushed him off the shelter, making him fall to the ground, but he wasn't sure which girl. The fall was about seven feet and caused a severe laceration to the boy's head. Right after this, the parents of three young girls came forward, telling the police that Mary and Norma had tried to strangle each of their daughters when they were playing in the sand pit. So the police came and they talked to Mary and Norma about these incidences. The girls tell the police that they had found the little boy after he was already bleeding and that he must have accidentally fallen. When asked about strangling the three little girls, Mary denied knowing anything about it. Norma told police that Mary had tried to throttle each girl. She was quoted saying, quote, Mary went to one of the girls and said, what happens if you choke someone? Do they die? Then Mary put both hands around the little girl's throat and squeezed. 
the girl started to go purple. I told Mary to stop, but she wouldn't. Then she put her hands around Pauline's throat, and she started to go purple as well. Another girl, Susan Cornish, came up, and Mary did the same thing to her. Wow. Mm-hmm. So the police lectured the girls, but because of their young ages, they just gave them a warning and never filed any charges. <laughs> Sorry. I think she must be a slow learner. She had to strangle three before she realized that, yeah, it makes them stop breathing. Well, she hadn't made them. Like yeah. She hadn't, she hadn't made them died yet. Yeah. Right. They just turned purple and, oh. and whatnot. So that's her next experiment. Yeah, After exactly. they go pur- purple, then what happens? Yep. So this brings us to our first murder victim. So it does escalate and not that long after. So on May 25th, 1968, the day before Mary's 11th birthday, two young boys were looking for scrap wood and entered an abandoned house. In one of the bedrooms of this house, they discovered the body of four-year-old Martin Brown. He was lying on his back with his arms stretched above his head. He had dried saliva mixed with blood around his mouth. A man who was working close by ran to the scene and tried to perform CPR. And while doing this, Mary and Norma showed up to watch. When the man shooed them away, they ran to Martin's aunt's house to tell her that her nephew had an accident and was covered in blood, which he wasn't. But they just wanted to make it sound more dramatic. When Martin's mom came running to the scene, she saw the man carrying the limp body of her son out of the building. He was cold and gray looking. An ambulance took the boy away and he was pronounced dead upon arrival to the hospital. And you can actually go online and there's interviews, like news interviews of the mom, of her coming up to the scene and finding her son. Oh, that is just terrible. It gives me goosebumps. Yeah. That would be horrific as a parent. That's your worst nightmare as a parent. Definitely. What? See, I'm showing you my goosebumps. Oh, she has actual goosebumps. (laughs) She raised her arm in the air and was pointing. And I'm like, I thought she was pointing to the time. Like, hurry up, Christy. No, I actually got goosebumps. She does actually have goosebumps. I hate hearing I about little kids' death. I know, it's a bad one. And we're just getting started. Mm-hmm. Police discovered an empty pill bottle close to where Martin's body had been found, causing them to suspect that the boy accidentally poisoned himself. The doctor didn't find any signs of violence on Martin's body and ruled the death a natural death. But the doctor did, however, mention to the police that it was possible that the boy could have been strangled by another child without leaving signs of violence since the child's hands are so small. And it wouldn't take much strength to strangle such a small boy. The police noted it, but didn't investigate it any further at this time. Those are always such hard cases. I know. For a class assignment after this, Mary wrote about Martin's death. She drew a picture of the body, well, a picture of a body laying in the exact position that Martin was found. She drew a bottle next to it and wrote the word tablet above the bottle. On the picture, she wrote, there has been a boy who just laid down and died. And you can see this picture that she drew online as well. I don't know. I would think that, so say we didn't know that she actually murdered him. I think that would be a normal response for a child that had witnessed somebody, like how to process something if they had just witnessed somebody die. Definitely. And please, they didn't find this picture until weeks later. And the mm-hmm. teacher had seen it, but she didn't think it was odd since Mary had been at the crime scene. That's right. Yeah, I wouldn't they have, had like, shooed her away. That's right. So yeah. I don't think that, like as the teacher, I would have thought it was odd at all. I think I would have thought that that was just a normal way for this little girl to process that yeah, she had seen somebody die. Definitely. And it might have been her way of processing what she had done. Oh, absolutely. But I, I wouldn't have led me to think that she had actually strangled him well they're just um with the pill bottles that wasn't a really well-known thing and so the police found that suspicious later that she knew exactly where the pill bottles were in proximity to the body body. 
Because yeah, you wouldn't expect. It was an exact, exact oh, drawing. Okay. And so, so you, that's where the police later were like, we didn't find it until afterwards. And that would have maybe caused us to look into it further. That's right. So you wouldn't expect a little girl that's just coming across the scene to actually know the intricate details of how the layout of the scene was. Right. Because it was said that they just stood at the entranceway to the bedroom where he was. And the man who had come to help shooed them away. So mm. they wouldn't have gotten up close to the body. Yeah. That would tip you off mm-hmm. for sure. So before Martin's funeral, Mary went to Martin's house and knocked on the door. When his mother answered, she asked if she could see Martin. His mother said no, that Martin was dead. Mary smiled at her and she replied, oh, I know he's dead. I wanted to see him in his coffin. So Martin's mother was shocked and slammed the door in Mary's smiling face. This shook her up. So Mary went there to torment her. It's a little creepy. Or did she just have a morbid curiosity? She just wanted to see the dead body. The report said that she was trying to torment her. Okay. But maybe. That's cruel. I think she just liked the attention. She liked to be in the drama, right? Mm -hmm. She was proud of her bad behavior because of the attention that it brought her. The day after Martin's death, so on May 26th, so now this is Mary's 11th birthday. On this day, Mary and Norma, they break into a nearby nursery and decide to vandalize it. They got inside by peeling the tiles off of the slate roof. Once inside, they tore up books, they tipped over desks, and they smeared ink and paint all over They also left four notes for the police to find. You could tell by the writing that these notes were written by children. I'm not going to read what they all say, but they basically, they swear at the police and they say that they murdered Martin. And you can go and look at these notes as well online. The other thing that I was thinking was that it probably ticked her off that if she wanted the attention from her bad behavior and she couldn't claim that she had done it, it probably ticked her off that nobody was giving her any attention when they buried Martin. Yeah, they said it was a natural death. So the very next day, she goes in and they vandalize this nursery and leave these notes because they know by vandalizing, the police are going to go there and they're going to find these notes. Unfortunately, the police dismissed this as a simple prank done by local children. Because it was children, they didn't think that it was that serious. They think it's just kids thinking they're going to be funny, you know, bad humor, inappropriate at the time. But And you have to remember that, like I said before, there's lots of crime in this area at this time. So they can tell by the notes that this was done by children. They're not too worried about it. And honestly, back in the 60s, children weren't even on the radar for anything, let alone like how we take care of them properly. But Right. And Martin's death was ruled as natural. So they're not looking for a killer for Martin either. They think this is just a, a joke and bad taste. No. On the same day, Norma's father, her friend Norma, her father contacts the police and reports that Mary had attacked one of his other daughters. So Norma's younger sister, who was 11. Mary was choking the young girl and wouldn't stop until Norma's father physically had to rip her away and throw her out of the house. Oh, wow. Yeah. He had to actually pry her hands off. Yeah. He had to hit her to get her off. He had to hit her. He had to hit her to get her off and threw her out of the house. So this is on the same day that they've vandalized this nursery. Mary at this time was also telling the other kids that she had killed someone and they just laughed. Everyone had the mentality that Mary will just be Mary. Well, she was probably odd from the very beginning, right? Yeah, so and they, they were just... they were used to her lying for attention. Oh, yeah. So she actually pointed to where Martin was found with the kids playing outside and said, I murdered someone there. And they just all laughed it off. They didn't take her Because she seriously. made up stories all the time. All the time, yeah. She'd been mm-hmm. taught from infancy to lie. Two months later, on July 31st, 1968, a three-year-old boy named Brian Howe was last seen playing outside of his house with his sibling and their family dog. Mary and Norma were playing there as well. Later that day, when Brian didn't come home, his family started to become concerned. And remember, it wasn't unusual for even the younger kids to just play outside all day long. Because he's only three, but that wasn't unusual. 
Soon a search party of family and neighbors was formed, and everyone began searching for little Brian. Mary and Norma even joined in on the search. They led one of Brian's sisters around the neighborhood looking for Brian, all the while knowing exactly where he was. Oh, that's just cruel. Yeah. Could you imagine the angst of those parents madly searching for their son? And here's this little girl just leading them astray. Yeah. Well, the sister, she was leading Brian's sister around. Yeah. And getting a thrill out of that. Walking around like, well, maybe he's over here. And then laughing inside like, we know where he is. That's again, one of those psychopath traits. Definitely. And Mary really likes to give shock to everybody, Mm -hmm. right? Mary led Brian's sister across the railroad tracks into the industrial area where all those demolished homes were. Mary pointed to some large concrete blocks and suggested that the sister go look over there because maybe Brian was playing behind or between the blocks. Norma interjects, saying that Brian wouldn't play over there. So Brian's sister decided to leave. No, oh, so, so then she, she had some to conscience go. to try and cover she it She did, up. yeah. Later that night at 11.10 p.m., police found the lifeless body of three-year-old Brian right where Mary had suggested he was playing. Norma said later that Mary wanted Brian's sister to find him so she would be shocked. Brian's body was found covered with grass and weeds. There was evidence that he had been strangled, bruising and scratches on the neck. Clumps of his hair had been cut and broken scissors were found close by. His thighs had multiple puncture marks, and part of his genitals had been mutilated. Oh, that's nasty. He's three. Sorry, and she had never stabbed anybody before. She hadn't. So there was just like little puncture marks all over his thighs. On his stomach, they discovered the letter M carved into it. It looked like first it was the letter N, and then afterwards an additional mark was added to make it look like an M. So they don't know if at first she was trying to blame Norma, you know, or if Norma had put the N in and then she added it, changed it to an M. Either way, they're claiming the body. Yeah. All these cuts were determined to have been made post-mortem, so after death, thankfully. The coroner stated that Brian had died, in fact, by strangulation, that the killer had squeezed his nostrils closed with one hand and gripped his throat with the other. He had been dead about seven and a half hours before he was found. The coroner also concluded that the murder suspect was likely a child since the amount of force that it took to kill Brian was relatively small. Gray and maroon fibers were found on Brian's clothes and shoes. Neither of these fibers matched any clothing or fabric in the house home. It was concluded that the fibers were transferred to him by his murderer. About discovering Brian's body, Inspector James Dobson said, There was a playfulness about it. A terrible gentleness, if you like. And somehow the playfulness of it made it more rather than less terrifying. Oh, it absolutely would be more terrifying for a child to have committed it than an adult. It takes the creep factor way up. It does. It's so eerie. Police began interviewing all the children in the area, including Mary and Norma. They became suspicious of the two girls when their stories kept changing and because of some of the evasive answers they were giving. Both girls admitted to playing with Brian, but said that they didn't see him after lunchtime. Mary tried to blame a local boy, saying she saw him hit Brian and saw that he had a pair of broken scissors. Only the police knew about these scissors. So this was an incriminating comment that she she made. She gave herself away. She did. And it turned out that the boy that she had had accused had been at the Newcastle airport all afternoon, that afternoon that Brian had died. So he couldn't possibly have done it. So now they know it's her. Mm -hmm. The arresting officer said that on the day of Brian's funeral, he noticed Mary standing outside the house house. She began laughing and rubbing her hands together as they brought his coffin out of the house to start the funeral procession. Oh, it's the original. (laughs) It was then that he knew he had to bring her in or she would most definitely do it again. Because that's not a normal response when you see a little boy's coffin being brought out of his home. 
Later that same day, around 8 p.m. on August 7th, both girls were arrested and charged with murder. When arrested, Mary said, that's all right by me, while Norma burst into tears telling Mary that she'd pay her back for this. Both quickly began blaming the other, and I won't go into all the accusations in detail. It was a she said, she said situation, and they go into lots of different details on their accusations, and we just don't have time to go through all of it. They both pled, however, not guilty. They are both throwing each other under the bus. They totally did. And fabricating, well, we don't know for sure what was fabricated, what wasn't. Mary did admit, though, to previously vandalizing the nursery and leaving the notes for the officers with Norma. But she didn't admit to killing Martin. Right. She's saying Norma did that. Okay. Forensics examined the girls' clothing and discovered that the gray fibers found were an exact match to a wool dress owned by Mary, and the maroon fibers matched a skirt of Norma's. So So now they could connect them. It then came out that the same gray fibers had been found on the first victim, Martin Brown, now linking the two murders. Martin's death was then changed to a homicide. It's curious that evidence was even collected for his death. Yeah. Because it wasn't ruled. That's suspicious. That's true. Well, they must have kept them. I am curious, listening to this case, how come we're covering Mary but not Norma? Like, she seems like she's totally intertwined in it all. Well, we'll get there. Okay. We'll talk about with Norma what happens. Soon after being arrested, both girls had to undergo psychological evaluations. Norma's results indicated that she was intellectually delayed and was a submissive character capable of displaying emotion. Her mental age was recorded at 8 years and 10 months old. The child psychiatrist said that her knowledge of right and wrong was limited, but that she could appreciate the criminality of the acts that she was accused of. So this is kind of how Norma isn't looked at as strongly as Mary. Okay. Mary was described as bright, cunning, and prone to mood swings. She could quickly become sullen, introspective, and defensive. Mary was evaluated by four psychiatrists. All said she didn't have a mental disorder, but suffered from a psychopathic personality disorder. One of the doctors made an official statement saying, quote, Mary's social techniques are primitive and take the form of automatic denial, ingratiation, manipulation, complaining, bullying, flight, or violence. I didn't know what ingratiation meant, so I looked it up, and it means becoming more likable in order to influence another. It's manipulative. Yeah, manipulating. Mary was described ultimately as displaying classic symptoms of psychopathy. On the first day of trial, December 5th, 1968, the judge waived the girls' rights to anonymity on account of their ages. So the press was allowed to publish their names and their ages and photographs of both girls. And that was because of the gravity of the, their... Yeah. yeah, it's the murder charge. They were tried together, but each had their own defense team. The prosecutor's opening statement was six hours long. Is that oh. normal? Like, that seems long to me. No, I think it's it's not unheard of. I don't think it's like the average but i don't think it's unheard of because that's just the opening statement that's not going over all your stuff so i just felt like that was really long opening and closing statements can be pretty can be long yeah especially when you're trying like they have two cases that they're trying at once right that's true so they're making a case against both that's true yeah because it's one prosecution yeah towards both girls the prosecutor stated that although the girls were different ages mary was the more dominant of the two she was unremorseful and cunning He also stated, though, that both girls were equally capable of murder and did it for the sole pleasure and excitement of it. He claimed both girls knew that it was wrong and what the result of their actions would be. Both girls testified in their own defense during the trial and continued to blame the other. And Mary's testimony was almost four hours long, which is a lot for she was 11 at the time. Yeah. 
During closing arguments, Norma's defense counsel emphasized that although the girls were on trial together, there was no real evidence connecting Norma to the crimes, except for Mary's accusations. And the fiber. The fiber, yeah. But they were also playing together earlier Mm -hmm. in the day. He said that both little girls shouldn't pay for the actions of one of them. Like we were talking about, Norma's skirt fibers were found on Brian's shoe. They knew Norma was there, but she claimed that she didn't take part. Who would actually know, though? Just those two girls, right? Exactly. When it comes down to it. And when you're facing a murder conviction, you're obviously going to say that, no, I, I didn't do any part of it. I oh, just watched. Definitely. definitely. Norma was definitely there, though. Yeah. Like that evidence puts her there. Absolutely. Mary's defense stated in their closing arguments that because of Mary's broken background and dysfunctional family, that Mary was unable to differentiate between fantasy and reality in her mind. I would believe that. Yeah, it seems believable to me. Yeah. One doctor who had interviewed her several times said that she suffered from a serious personality disorder that, quote, retarded development of her mind. And he said that this was caused by both genetic and environmental factors. He said this abnormality had impaired Mary's responsibility for her actions. In the prosecution's closing arguments, they characterized Mary as a fiend. So, like, as a demon. Mm -hmm. Prosecutor Rudolph Lyons said, In Norma, you have a simple, backward girl of subnormal intelligence. In Mary, you have a most abnormal child, aggressive, vicious, cruel, incapable of remorse. A girl, moreover, possessed of a dominating personality with a somewhat unusual intelligence and a degree of cunning that is almost terrifying. On December 17th, after deliberating for only three hours and 25 minutes, the jury of five women and seven men had reached a verdict. Norma was acquitted of all charges, but was given three years probation for breaking into the nursery and was placed under psychiatric supervision. For how long? Like for life under psychiatric supervision? That it didn't say. Three years probation, so I'm assuming during that three years probation. I didn't read anything that that carried on past that. But they felt that mentally she wasn't responsible, that she was delayed. She was functioning at an eight-year-old level. Right. They didn't really think that she had done the murders herself anyways, but that she had been an accomplice. She had been there. I find it hard that you can make that that argument for her and not make that same argument that because of Mary's incapabilities of feeling um, empathy and being brought up the proper way or... Right. But she had a higher intelligence. And so they felt that she had more. But just because you're smarter doesn't mean that you understand empathy or right from wrong. So just because she has a higher IQ, that's why she's more responsible. And I just don't buy it. Yeah. And it's hard to say. I mean, Norma, if you look at her past actions, she did let the girl go that Norma had in the sand pit. She didn't let Brian's little sister discover him. I don't think she was there for the first murder at all. And so it's hard to say. Yeah. It was very clear that Mary had a hold over her and could manipulate her. Yeah. And so, and when you're talking about little kids and then one child who's mentally delayed, it gets really murky. I guess my argument is, is that I would argue that Mary is mentally delayed as well, right? She's emotionally delayed. She's emotionally damaged. Yeah. And definitely whether it's emotional or mental delay, it presents the same disadvantages. Oh, definitely. Right. Absolutely. And so to hold one accountable because she's smart and not hold the other one accountable. Like it seems like they were kind of polar opposites in that Norma didn't have the smarts, but she had the emotional capability to understand what they were doing is wrong. But Mary didn't have the emotional capability to understand it. Right. But did have the smarts to understand it. Mm -hmm. But I guess, too, they had said Norma's chance of reoffending was very low. Mary's chance of reoffending was almost guaranteed. Yeah, and I could understand that because of the personality disorder. Yeah, the psychopath yeah. there. 
correct. She would have definitely been more prone to reoffending. Definitely. She didn't even have a cooling off period after she had murdered Martin. The very next day she wanted attention. The very next day she was breaking into the nursery and trying to strangle Norma's little sister. Mm-hmm. So the judge described Mary as dangerous and stated that she posed a grave risk to other children. He said steps must be taken to protect the public from her. So that's your main reason why one gets a punishment and the other one doesn't. There wasn't really a facility set up to take 11-year-old girls who killed in England at that time. And they couldn't send her to prison and mental facilities weren't equipped to handle children. So they didn't really know what are we going to do with this child. So temporarily, Mary was sent to a remand home. But she wasn't there very long. In early 1969, she was sent to the Red Bank Secure Unit, a young offenders institution in Merseyside. She was the only female of 24 inmates. Oh, wow. It was like a juvie center or was it like a more a psychiatric center? It was more like a juvie from what I could understand. Mary later claimed that she was sexually assaulted in this facility by both staff and other inmates, but it was never proven. But believable. Believable. But she does kind of contradict herself later, which I'll talk about. At age 16 in 1973, Mary was transferred to a secure wing of HM Prison Style in Cheshire. While there, she applied for parole and lost. In 1976, Mary was transferred to Moore Court Open Prison. So this meant that Mary could now come and go as long as she was back by curfew. She was taking a secretarial course at this time, so she could go for her course and was starting to take a job doing that as well. So she was actually trying to become a good citizen? Yeah, she was trying to, well, I I mean, I can't say, but yeah, she was trying to improve. Right. She was actually taking this course, like starting to think about her future. 15 months after being in this open prison, Mary and another inmate, Annette Priest, briefly escaped. Oh. Yeah. And this is where she contradicts herself. She says she escaped to lose her virginity, but then she was claiming that she sexual assault. So the two of them, they spent several days in Blackpool with two young men. They were going to amusement parks and staying in hotels. They just, I mean, they're young, right? They just mm-hmm. broke out to go have some fun. And they spent a long time in prison before that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The two parted ways and Mary, using the alias Mary Robinson, was arrested at the home of one of the men in Derbyshire on September 13th, 1976. Mary had dyed her hair blonde to try and hide her identity. Her accomplice, Annette, was arrested later that same day as well in Leeds. Mary's punishment was loss of privileges for 28 days. That's it? (laughs) I laughed at this. I was like, that's not even a full grounded for a month. (laughs) Like, what, you know, as a parent, if you're going to ground your kid for a month, like, no, 28 days, she lost her open privileges. Her open privileges. She was grounded. Yeah, she had to stay at the center. And I just wanted to note, too, that the men that they were with, they actually got charged for harboring prison escapees. Oh, for sure. Both of them did. Yeah. I wonder if they knew. Did they know that they were prison escapees? Maybe. But wouldn't that just add to the excitement? These wild girls break out of prison? And I don't know. I don't know. But they they were charged. Yeah. (laughs) serial killer edition (laughs) maybe somebody gets off on that well even just look at how many women become fangirls of all these horrific serial killers or even there's definitely a poll just for some people or how many people actually get so much mail fan mail and stuff fan mail in i know it blows my mind and end up getting married in prison and stuff because all these women are just that's like our last case yeah like the Harrison murder case, right? Where both of them are seeking new relationships. I know. And people are and wanting people, it. Yeah. People know that they're criminals. Yeah. Because didn't Melissa get married? Yeah. She got married in, in prison. prison. And Chris had a profile, right? Yeah. So maybe these guys were totally into that. 
oh yeah these bad girls can escape from prison and it's the 60s oh yeah what a wild <laughs> time to be doing that yeah. but i wanted to note here that during mary's incarceration remember her dirtbag mom betty yes she would actually sell stories and pictures that mary allegedly drew to the press she would even ask Mary to write poems and letters that she could easily sell to the tabloids. Oh, because she needed the money. Yep, so still a dirtbag mom. That hasn't changed. Oh. She also did public interviews, which you can go online and watch. And it was suspected that she just liked the spotlight on herself and didn't want her own name tarnished. She just openly talked about how much she suffered being the mother of a juvenile killer. It still wasn't it was about, about her. Mary. It was still about Betty. Yeah. Betty did, however, go often to visit Mary in prison, but the prison staff said that Mary would be upset and act out aggressively after her mother had visited. Well, no kidding. She was all, all after, tell me your story so I can sell them. Yeah. She and just was there not, for her at all. Anyway. It was not a healthy relationship. She hadn't bonded to her mother. Yeah. The prison staff wanted to stop the visits, but that was unheard of at the time. You couldn't keep a mother away from a child. This mother should have probably been kept away from her child oh. long before she committed any murders. Absolutely. In 1980, on May 14th, at age 23, Mary was released from custody, a free woman, after serving less than 12 years. She didn't get life sentences? Nope. She was sentenced to an indeterminate. Indetermined. Yeah, okay. amount of time. But I just assumed that that would be like life. Well, like, we don't even know how long you're going to live for right here, so. She had the possibility to be released, and they That's decided at 23 scary. that she could be released. So. Because she was half living out, right? Because it was an open prison, so they could see how she was doing. Okay, but still hasn't received any kind of therapy or anything. Has been determined that she's a psychopath. Right. And I don't know that. I don't know if she's had any. I don't know what they provided inside the prison. Maybe she had been given that. She was just magically fixed at 23 and could get out. Yeah. So Mary was granted anonymity and was allowed to change her name and start a brand new life. Four years after being released on May 25th, 1984, Mary gave birth to a daughter. And this was the exact anniversary date of the murder of Martin Brown. So her daughter was born on the same day that she had killed Martin Brown. Interesting. Yeah. And I wonder, does that affect Mary at all? When they're celebrating her daughter's birthday, does she think about Martin Brown every year on her daughter's birthday? I don't know how she couldn't. But then she's a psychopath, so maybe she doesn't think about it. Yeah, I don't know. The right of anonymity extended to Mary's daughter until the age of 18. However, the press discovered marrying her daughter in 1998 when her daughter was only 14 and they had to flee the press with sheets over their heads and be escorted to a safe house. Awful for her daughter. Yeah. And Mary's daughter had no idea before this that what her mother was or what her mother had done as a child. Okay. So that's at least good for the daughter. But and at then, 14, she found all this out and was like, uh, mom, you have some explaining to do. True, but at least she didn't have tip-offs of how, like, if her childhood was generally okay, it wasn't like she thought, oh, my mom's messed up and she's doing all this stuff to me. And now that explains why. Right. By all reports, she had a normal childhood. But all of a sudden at 14, can you imagine all of a sudden the tabloids and the press chasing you and like find out your mom had murdered two children when she was a child? That would be so awful. But her daughter was good about it. There was, I had read some reports where she had said she forgave her mom. She's like, my mom is younger than I am right now when she committed this stuff. Mm-hmm. So their relationship remained intact after so that. So was there any reports on what she was like as a mother? It sounded like she was a fine mom. Interesting. Yeah. Like okay. from, by the time she gets out, there's no Has criminal no. activity at all. 
psychopathic tendencies don't typically go away. Right. We're going to talk about this. Okay. We're going to talk about this at the end. Okay. My um, mind is blown. So Mary ended up battling the high court and was granted lifelong anonymity for herself and her daughter. So this would extend for her daughter's entire life, not just till she's 18, because they thought the tabloids have seen what she looks like at 14. She's not going to look that different by age 18. And eventually the order was updated to include her granddaughter, who was just referred to as Z or Z. But how many criminals actually get that? I don't know. And we're going to talk about that. Okay. I have that on my list. We're talking okay. about that at the end. <laughs> so as a result of this ruling, any court order giving lifelong anonymity to a convict in Britain is now known as the Mary Bell Order. This order prohibits any press from reporting on any aspect of their lives that could identify them. Their names, photos, whereabouts, anything. Mary and her daughter relocated to another part of the United Kingdom. So Mary's current location is still unknown. She could be anywhere. Your next door neighbor. <laughs> I was going to write that in my notes, but yeah. <laughs> Does she live next to you? How well do you know your neighbor? <laughs> so she would currently, if I did my math right, she should be 64 years old today. And I assume living a good life with her daughter and her granddaughter. There's been no news reports or, or any filings that, that would speak otherwise. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. After Mary won her family's anonymity, June Richardson, 64 at the time, whose four-year-old son Martin Brown was suffocated by Mary Bell, said, quote, A child is a blessing. She took my blessing and left me grief for the rest of my life. I hope when she looks at this child, she remembers the two she murdered. I will never see a grandchild from my son. I hope every time she looks at this baby, she realizes what my family are missing out on because of what she has done. It is so true, though. We it often is. protect the murderer and their family much more than we protect the victim's families. Exactly. And that's what Mrs. Richardson continues to say. She also is reported saying, quote, it's about her and how she has to be protected. As victims, we are not given the same rights as the killers. And that still happens today. Absolutely. Yeah. We don't post pictures of murderers. We can't identify murderers living in our community, but victims are identified all the time. So I naturally have a few questions as a result from researching this case and where I kept saying, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. Now let's talk about okay. it. Now so I, can I, have, talk. I have three things that I kind of want us to go over. So first, should convicted murderers be granted anonymity to start a new life after being released from prison? So listeners, what do you think? You can always go to our Facebook and our Instagram page with any of these questions or any comments that you have about cases. I do want to know what you guys think about this. It would be interesting to learn what other people think. Because I'm sure there's both ends of the spectrum. Oh, absolutely. I could argue definitely both. Definitely. Yeah. So I'm not sure about that one. Should they be granted that? I think with Mary being such a young child at the time, because normally I would say, no, you did it. You served your time. And You're released you need... and that's great. You know, just like I, I'm totally for like sex offenders having to be registered on a list. Right. And they should have to live with the consequences of what they did. And just like we were talking about, the victims have to live with the consequences of what they did lifelong. Nobody expunges that record or gets right. rid of it. Yeah. June Richardson is always going to be known as the mom yeah. of the little boy who was strangled. Right. Mm -hmm. But then you look at her age and you think, how do we actually rehabilitate then? And so I guess that's maybe where it comes down to is, do we actually believe that people can be rehabilitated? Right. She was protected from that. And it sounds like she's living an okay life. And so she was rehabilitated. But if her crimes were known to her neighbors and things like that, I think the chances of her rehabilitation would have went down quite significantly. Well, and one of the things in her case, too, was that her safety was in danger because people, when they found out who she was, she's this child murderer. Yeah. They're not even thinking about that she was a child at the time and they're coming after her. Yeah. Okay. 
Next question. Okay. So another controversial event that happened since Mary's release is that she was paid by an author to interview her about her life. So remember I talked about those books. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to give the name of this particular book. There's been a couple books published. But the book from this interview, Mary was reported being paid 50,000 pounds. And so that's about 87,000 Canadian or almost 70,000 US dollars wow, for her that's interview. that's a good chunk of change. Yeah. And so I wanted to kind of look into the book and I couldn't find it at any of our local libraries and I couldn't order it. I checked chapters in Indigo. I couldn't order it online or find it in any of their stores. I did see it on, on Amazon for like 75 bucks. So I'm not sure if certain places have decided not to carry this book mm. since you know, a child murderer was paid for it. So that Ah. brings me to my second question. Should convicted murderers be allowed to profit from their crime? I don't know how you distinguish between their crime from their life story. Was the book about her life story or was it? It was all of it. It talked, it talked a lot more about her childhood abuse. Like it was her giving her account of her whole life leading up to it. And so we, we, of the murders, we pay people all the time to tell their life stories her life story involves killing two children. Right. And so if I'm paying you for your life story, that's just your life story. The only reason they want her life story is because she killed two people. And so she's getting paid money for telling her story. There's always this nagging part of me that says that how else will we raise awareness about these issues? Like how else do we bring to light that adverse childhood experiences have a negative impact on people's lives and how they actually grow up unless we have these stories out there. And so, yeah, but I guess you could tell her story without being paid for it. That's what I was just going to say. I absolutely 100% agree with that, but I feel personally that they shouldn't profit from that. Yeah. It does sit wrong that they profit from crime. Yeah. If she wants to tell her story to tell her side and get her voice out there, fine, let's do that. But to get paid a large sum of money, any sum of money doesn't seem right to me. Since this time, though, Britain has made a law that killers can no longer profit from their crimes. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, so Britain (laughs) has changed their law. I'm not sure what the laws are here with that. I should have looked that up before. I bet you Canada has the same law. Hang on, Melissa's going to look it up. And there have definitely been other books and TV shows made regarding this case. But Mary didn't benefit financially from those ones. It looks like they cannot be prevented. It looks like it goes province by province. Oh, wow. So I wonder if the states is that way too, state by state. Yeah, it might. Probably. Because Robert Picton sold his memoirs. Oh, my gosh. And he's terrible. Oh, my gosh. If anyone knows about Robert Picton, that might be one that we have to do. I remember when that one was happening, like hearing about it here in Canada. So I guess that's the distinction between are they telling their life story or are they glorifying glorifying their crime? Hmm. Uh, It doesn't sit well with me. Have the proceeds of that book go to the victim's families. Right. You know, or to a charity. I don't think they should be pocketing that. Okay. And that leads me to our final question. This is the, the big debate. How much of this case is nature versus nurture? And I think this is a perfect case to explore this old age debate. So I was thinking to myself, any listeners out there, if you're writing a paper on this type of subject, use this case. It's a perfect case to discuss. So I have a few questions about it, like things that were in my brain. So I'm just going to kind of like spew that out and then we can talk about it. So did Mary reform at the age of 23 when she was released? Where did those psychopathic tendencies go? She claimed that she was a totally different person than the psychopathic child she once was. So could she be? She said that the broken part that was inside her was now fixed. Is that possible? Was she a bad seed and inherently evil? Or did her childhood mold her into a young killer that she had become? Was Mary so neglected that she went to the extreme measure of taking a life just to get any type of attention? Or was she born a murderer? 
Yeah, those are all really good questions. Yeah, like let us know. What do you guys think? I'll be curious to see what people actually post because myself, I don't think it's always cut and dry of it's nature or it's nurture. There's an interplay between the two of them always. I agree. But it'll be interesting to see what other people think. You know, maybe Mary had some of those tendencies, but if she was brought up in a loving, healthy environment, would that have happened? I don't think it probably would have. Yeah, I don't think so either. And I don't know if those tendencies can just disappear over time. I don't know either. There's a lot of research on epigenetics that goes into how much of a brain structure can be changed by our early experiences. And so those brain structures, they don't change over, like once they're cemented there, they don't change. Those centers that are hyperstimulated as an infant, they stay hyperstimulated as an adult. Once and we so, mature. That's right. And mm-hmm. so I don't think that those tendencies can go away. Now, can you learn coping mechanisms to actually suppress those tendencies? Absolutely. And that's why we can change, but I don't think they completely go away. Yeah, Such an interesting know. topic. It's so, it is. We could talk. We could do a whole episode just on this topic. And super debatable, especially when you look at it from a parent's point of view. Definitely. So super easy to look at if you're just talking about this one person in isolation. But now as a parent, you think that, oh, am I totally messing my kids up every time I make a mistake? (laughs) Or yeah, some of that's on them. Like that's their personality. And this is extreme. All of us parents make mistakes and that's not going to turn our child into a psychopath. Mary, it was just every single angle that she could be hit with. She was. But and does that extremes. make her not responsible for it then? She didn't even serve a full 12 years. Which is so crazy. She, so she still was given that chance. Yeah. Same like Norma, but there was some rehabilitation that needed to take place with Mary. And it would be interesting to know what that rehabilitation actually was. But it sounds like if she stayed, well, it'd be hard to tell because you wouldn't know. She could be a, under a totally different name, but the news can't report. Like say she that did. That is her. Yeah. So yeah. say she did make the newspapers again about, I right. don't know, But authorities would know who she is. Right. And in this case, it sounds like it worked. She was able to live an okay life That's right. with her daughter and her granddaughter. But we also hear of cases where people go on or get let out or get off or whatever. Well, that was like and the Bruce MacArthur keep, case. Yeah. And they keep reoffending. Yeah. His first one was totally expunged, his first attack. Yeah. So when police talked to him later, they had no idea. But with Mary, they would have. So you guys let us know what you think. Go to our Facebook and our Instagram pages and make some comments on this case. We're excited to hear your feedback. And with that, that is this crazy, shocking, heartbreaking, and disturbing case of the little girl murderer, Mary Bell. Oh, so disturbing. And you know what I was thinking the whole time through? Mm. That's like the age that you invite your neighbor's kids over to come and babysit or something. (gasps) That's true. Yeah, 12. And probably at that time was probably even younger. That's right. right. That you would start babysitting. Oh, so creepy. Oh, it's hard enough as a mom, you know, to even like trust who you leave your kids with and stuff, let alone worrying about, is this babysitter gonna? Is this, well, because you're always trying to protect them from adults, right? Yeah. Not the other children that they're around. And to look at Mary, I mean, she had this beautiful brown hair, dark hair, and these big, beautiful blue eyes and... Such a crazy case. It is a crazy case. All right, listeners, we hope that you join us next week when we'll be covering a case by me. Yeah, Melissa's got another doozy. We got another one for you. We'll see you later. Have a good week. Bye.
I think my chin is actually touching the thing. Hey, now my chin is actually touching the thing. <laughs> Can you hear our chins touching? <laughs> not touching each other, but touching. <laughs> well, that's rude not to say hello. Oh, Christy. A- <laughs> Christy forgot to put his phone that? on silent. I have it on silence, but can you guys hear that vibration? <laughs> That's my mom calling. Hi, mom. <laughs> Christy's mom notoriously calls every time every we're recording. Time. So shout out to my mom. We love you. And I'll call you back after. <laughs> I'll call you back in a bit, mom. There's a lot of fiends in this one. You're not doing the rewind. You really need to do the... <laughs> Let's try now. Am I there too? Yep. Okay, cleansing breath. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah? Did you know that cows have accents? We did now, but we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.